0: This podcast is sponsored by Alt-Legal. Alt-Legal, easy-to-use IP docketing with powerful automation, deadline calculation, and reporting. Hello and welcome to the Alt-Trademarks podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Samendinger. On this episode, I was joined by Anne Gilson-Lalonde. Anne is the author of the trademark treatise, Gilson on Trademarks. She took over authorship of the book from her father, Jerome Gilson, in 2006, Anne has also written articles on a variety of trademark related topics many co-authored with her father you can find Anne on Twitter at Gilson on TMs you can also find out more about alt legal on Twitter at alt legal HQ and at altlegal.com. thank you for joining us and enjoy hi Anne thanks for
1: joining me hi thanks so much for asking me Hannah
0: absolutely I was so excited when we started communicating on Twitter because you have such an interesting and non-traditional career, um, and that's because you are the Gilson of Gilson on Trademarks, which is a well-known treatise and has been cited by the Supreme Court. Um, And I looked into the publication a little bit before our call, and I noticed it was started by your father. And you actually took over authorship in 2006. So by way of background, can you just tell us a little bit more about how you got involved with that publication and if it's something that you always intended on working on or at some point contributing to?
1: Sure, well, the first edition of the treatise, uh, my dad wrote when I was six years old. So it had always been around sort of in the background, but I I didn't go to law school thinking, oh, I'm gonna work on the book, much less thinking mm-hmm. I would ever take it over. And I went to law school because I had taken a great constitutional law class in college. So it was totally unrelated to trademark law. After law school, I worked um, in the litigation group at Stidley and Austin in D.C., and then I clerked for a district court judge for two years. And at the end of my clerkship, I was pregnant with my first child, didn't have another job lined up, and my dad said, hey, can you rewrite this section on false advertising for me? And I got hooked on the whole topic of trademark law and the idea of writing for a living and i just kept working for my dad about 7 years later i took over the treatise from him entirely it really turned out to be the family business
0: yeah how and how is it working with your father
1: on on that treatise is it i, I yeah i think we work really well together we do a little bit of work still on the book together um we write an article together every year which has been terrific the nice thing is, I know whatever I write, he's going to make sure it's not only correct legally and grammatically but also fun to read they're They're not these very formal articles they can They can be a lot of fun to write and to read and and also, I have to say, there's nobody who loves being a trademark lawyer more than my dad when my brothers and I were little. He would tell us bedtime stories about the furry little trademark. I'm not making this up. And he fought crime with Batman. He was a good guy. Um, And my dad has always loved his job. And it's great to be able to work with somebody who has that kind of enthusiasm and, and passion for the subject.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And can you just speak a little bit? I know I'm at least uh, a little bit unfamiliar with how it works. But how do you go about writing and
1: maintaining a treatise? What kind of, you know, how does that process work? Yeah. Well, I send in updates for the book three times a year. Most people uh, look at it electronically, but the books are loose leaf, so they're just they just get updated. But what I do is keep up with the case law from the federal courts and the TTAB, any developments at the PTO with their rule changes, domain name developments, whatever there is in trademark law. And I incorporate all of that into each release. So I make changes throughout the book and all the different chapters. I also have this ongoing, very long list of long-term mm-hmm. projects. There are sections I'd love to update or add. It's like I just rewrote the section on evidence of distinctiveness, for example, and I added a little section on emojis. Mm -hmm. So I try to stay current. I look at bigger picture issues too to see when I need to rewrite sections or chapters. So it's mainly me at my computer a lot of the time, but I do go to conferences and talk to people and I come back with a lot of notes to incorporate.
0: Yeah. um, That's fascinating. And Beyond Gilson on trademarks you write other articles and speak but you mentioned to me that you don't actually advise clients anymore or do any kind of client facing work so how did you decide to go that route and just sort of focus on the writing and speaking
1: but not any client facing work right so i mean having two kids it's been great to have this very flexible job when i worked at the firm i mean i vividly remember those friday night at 6 p.m. phone calls saying, oh, can you work this weekend? And it wasn't a question, it was a statement. <laughs> um, and so with the treatise and without the the client kind of pressures, I know what I need to get done, and I can do it when it works best for me. I mean, I have to be pretty disciplined about it, but I think it helped that I was working directly for my father for the first few years. Mm-hmm. I, you can't miss deadlines when you're working for your dad. Um, And, you know, I I enjoy working by myself most of the time. I do always try to say yes to speaking invitations if I can, partly because it's a different skill set than the one I use every day, but also because it it requires me to interact with actual people, even if they're not clients. So so I try to, to push myself to do that wherever I can.
0: Right. And some of these topics that you're preparing research on. Um, when I was trying to prep for the interview, I found so many articles, and I was like, "Oh, what are we going to talk about? There's so many choices." Um, so I asked you if you had any topic in particular that you would like to discuss. And you were a model guest, and you gave me several great ideas. So ultimately, I couldn't pick. Uh, so I'm just going to ask you about a couple of them. So let's just jump right in because um, we have a couple here to cover. So. This was the topic, uh, proposed update to the Lanham Act, that I'm most excited to pick your brain about because, as you mentioned to me and our correspondents before the interview, some people may not know about this um, proposed update, and it has the potential to have a really big impact. So my understanding is the federal government has proposed to update the Lanham Act and move it to the patent section of the U.S. Code. So first, I guess, can you just speak a little bit about why that has been proposed and what exactly they're considering?
1: Sure. I still find this to be a very strange thing that's happening. (laughs) But it turns out that the Lanham Act isn't what's called positive law. It's a combination of different laws that were separately enacted, like the Dilution Act and the Anti Cyber Squatting Act, that were just put together in Title 15. So, non positive law, like the Lanham Act, only prima facie evidence of what the law actually is. So in theory, it's less authoritative than positive law because it's subject to challenge. So a party could come in and say, the language of the statute is different from what was passed by Congress, and the statute my opponent is relying on is wrong. So this issue has never actually come up in a published court decision. This problem that the Lanham Act isn't positive law. And there's no suggestion from anyone that anything in the Lanham Act is actually, in fact, different from what was passed by Congress. But there's a government office that thinks that this is a problem and wants to do something about it. So it's called the Office of Law Revision Council and it works for the U.S. House of Representatives. One of its jobs is codifying statutes to make them positive law. So it's the OLRC, I'll call it, and it it wants to update the language of the Lanham Act and reorganize it and put it into the U.S. Code as positive law. So it it isn't just the Lanham Act. The OLRC is already done this with some other laws. It has others on a list on its website, but it says it reorganizes the laws, it eliminates obsolete provisions, it clarifies ambiguous provisions, and it corrects technical errors, which is sort of frightening imagining people who have no background in trademark law trying to go through and edit the Lanham Act to somehow make it better. Um, And not only do they want to make changes to the language, but it would renumber the statute, and as you said, they would move it to a different title of the U.S. Code, Title 35, which is where the patent law is. So we wouldn't be able to refer to, say, the Section 2D refusal or a claim under Section 43A, because that wouldn't be right anymore. Um, And in terms of moving the, the, the statute, as an example, Section 43A, which is now 15 U.S.C., 1127A, it would become 35 U.S.C. Section 664A, and we'd all have to get used to that. And the PTO would definitely be affected. They'd have to redo the TMEP, the TBMP, I mean, the whole trademark part of the website in all of their forms. Doing legal research would be really complicated because there'd be two totally different citations that you'd have to search. Explaining the changes to judges will also be difficult, especially if there are even little changes in the statutory language, saying to a court, well, this new language is supposed to mean the same thing as the old language. It might not do any good, and you know the court could interpret the new language differently. So, the, the the latest status of this is on October 18th of this year, uh, the OLRC submitted a draft bill to the House Committee on the Judiciary for it to introduce into Congress.
0: And so, you're part of an intergroup to um, the International Trademark Association that's working on this. So, what does that work look like? What are you guys doing to? So I guess, work against, I would uh, presume, against that
1: that bill. Right. INTA has officially opposed this idea of codification. And the OLRC, they actually tried to do this exact same thing 10 years ago, and INTA opposed it then, too. And I'm not sure why the idea got dropped again, but sadly it's, it's back. <laughs> but right now, Inta ha- um, INTA's lobbyist and it's, Director of Government Relations, they've been talking to the the staff of the House Judiciary Committee and trying to convince them that really there are no benefits to rewriting and, and moving the trademark law. And as, as I mentioned, there are plenty of downsides. And INTA has been reaching out to, to other organizations like AIPLA and the ABA to try to get some support. So right now, the INTA group is It's primarily the U.S. legislation and regulation subcommittee. And what they're doing and we're doing is going through the proposed bill and comparing it line by line to the current trademark law, just to see, really to make sure there aren't any sort of unintended consequences to to their little tweaks. So I'm trying to help out with that effort.
0: And what do you think the outcome will be? I mean, I don't know how how easy it is for you to predict, but... Based right. on of the work you've done so far, do you have any sort of inclination? what what yeah, might well,
1: happen? the people that one of the uh the folks at, at Inta suggesting that the, who has more experience in the, the this government the government area than I do, um, they're hoping that the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to be too busy to deal with this issue so that even if it's introduced and it gets out of the house, it won't go any further. But I don't know, the, the, the OLRC seems determined to get this done. I mean, coming back after 10 years. it's And also, it's one of the, the mandates of this office is to make everything into positive law. Um, one possibility is that they might make fewer of these technical changes to the language. I mean, that might reduce the confusion a little bit later mm-hmm. on, but I don't think that's going to stop them from trying to get this through. So I would not be surprised if it, actually became law
0: oh and so how
1: could people track updates to the to the proposal there there are updates on the the olrc's website at and that's called it's uscode.house.gov and also there's uh on the their page on the Act codification there's contact information if anybody wants to complain about this as a concept, but, but I guess really, we all just have to keep our fingers crossed with this one. Yeah.
0: And I'll link, I'll link to that um, site as well. So that people can access it easily. That's a fascinating, I hadn't, before you mentioned it, I hadn't even heard um, anything about that and it wouldn't have such a huge impact. Okay. So I'm going to switch gears just a little bit to touch on another topic that you had um, sent along, which is uh, talking about the first amendment and viewpoint discrimination And so the Supreme Court recently handed down the decision in the Slants case, uh, Matalvi Tam, uh, which we've talked about some on this podcast with some other guests. Um, So people are probably familiar with the basic case, but the court basically paved the way for registration of disparaging trademarks. So in the wake of that case, have you noticed that there's been a lot of application filed for those types of trademarks?
1: There haven't been as many as people assumed there would be. So if you take the word that most people are probably concerned about when it comes to disparaging marks and I'll just call it the N word there've been 17 applications for that word or kind of variations of it mm-hmm. and some of those have even been from the same applicant for different classes so maybe a dozen um I think the fact that I'm reluctant to even say the word here right. that probably suggests why there haven't been that many applications. I mean, it seems like a great edgy trademark to some people, but it costs money to apply for the registration. I think not many people really have the stomach to use it as an actual trademark. And there, also, the, all these particular applications are intent to use except one. So again, I'm not sure people really want to use that word in a business. They guessing there's some misunderstanding too of how trademark law works and they think that they can you know, just gain rights to this word by by applying for it. So there may be some of that going on. Right. There
0: did seem to be a flurry just after the case um, of people just sort of declaring that they could and would, but as you're mentioning, it, it does cost a significant amount of money to actually follow through with that. Right. Um, and you mentioned to me that you could see how the court thought the ban on disparaging marks Um, Was or could have been viewpoint discrimination. So can you speak just a little bit on that idea and why you can see that being the case?
1: Yeah, so the, the plurality opinion in that the case said giving offense is a viewpoint. So what the Disparagement Clause let the PTO do was deny registration to marks that offended people but not to marks that didn't offend people. So I've, I came up with a couple examples. In in one case, the, the PTO had said that the mark porno Jesus was disparaging to Christians, but in a separate uh, application, the mark thank you Jesus had been registered. So this so-called kind of negative viewpoint was banned, but the positive viewpoint was fine. Um, and in another case, the Federal Circuit held that Stop the Islamization of America was disparaging to Muslims, but in another, after another application, the PTO registered the mark Jewels of Islam. So, so one viewpoint, it didn't get the benefit of registration, but the other one did. So I think in that way, the viewpoint discrimination holding makes some sense. Right. And there are some categories of marks that are sort of
0: similarly uh, positioned, but with less clear guidance on their validity um, after this case. And mainly I'm thinking of scandalous marks. So what do you think is next
1: for those marks? I I, I assume people know about this case, but um, Eric Brunetti applied to register the word mark F-U-C-T for athletic apparel, and also kind of oddly, for children's and infant's apparel. He's been using this the mark for years, but the registration was refused under the scandalousness provision, and he appealed, and the Federal Circuit on um, August 29th, they had oral argument on whether the Supreme Court's opinion on disparaging marks means that the scandalousness bar is also unconstitutional. And the PTO argued that scandalous marks are different from disparaging marks and matal shouldn't apply. And it, it said, well, barring scandalous marks from registration isn't viewpoint discrimination because refusing to register lewd material isn't viewpoint neutral. I, I listened to the oral argument of this online. It's It's really interesting. And the panel almost... I would say mocked the the government <laughs> attorney during this. So I, I don't know that that bodes really well for their chances of success here. But you um, know, I think it's not immediately obvious that sexual reference or a swear word shows a viewpoint. But I think the argument is that putting a burden on the use of those words it can make speech less effective. I mean, I think back to the the F the draft case, I won't say the word because I don't know if you want an explicit rating, but the, um, Cohen v. California, I remember from law school, where somebody wore a jacket, you know, that had the full expletive on it, and he was arrested. And the Supreme Court said that violates the First Amendment. The state doesn't have any right to, they said, cleanse public debate. And his sort of statement about this, it wouldn't have been as effective if he was only allowed to say the draft is bad you know it doesn't really show his the the full the full you know feeling behind the statement right. and i mean i don't know how the uspto is going to get beyond the court saying giving offense is a viewpoint right and do you think that
0: the idea of impermissible viewpoint discrimination could also apply to other trademark claims like
1: dilution by tarnishment I think this is a really interesting question. After the Supreme Court opinion came out, a lot of commentators said, "Well, tarnishment looks quite a bit like disparagement, so this provision is likely to, uh, you know, go away after Metal." So the claim in a tarnishment case is that the defendant is harming the reputation of the plaintiff's famous trademark by using the the same mark or a similar mark. So I think there's some Initial appeal to that, somebody tarnishing a trademark, seems a lot like somebody disparaging a person or a group. But I went and looked back at actual tarnishment cases, and I don't think the comparison really works. There are two typical categories of tarnishment cases. There's associating the the famous mark with products that are bad quality and then there are also cases where the famous mark is put into what some cases call an unwholesome context. But I don't see how these are really the viewpoint discrimination. I think what these are mostly about is stopping people from more free riding on the, the reputation of this famous mark. So there's a case that um, from several years ago, there was a pornographic website at candyland.com. And the court said, well, this tarnishes the trademark for the board game. People aren't likely to be confused that they're associated, but but the reputation of Candyland is going to be reduced in some people's minds. And I just, I don't really see how it's viewpoint discrimination to stop a use like that. or you know, even on the other side, if you're showing the famous mark in a positive light, that still could be dilution by, by blurring. I think it both kind of viewpoints if you're using somebody else's famous mark, both of those would be prohibited. I'm right. sure somebody's gonna make this argument. In litigation at some point so i think we'll probably have an, an answer to it we'll have to wait and see what the courts say about it
0: yeah it's interesting it's so it's so close but just a little bit it's slightly different right um, yeah, yeah it's an interesting distinction
1: mm-hmm.
0: um okay so switching gears one more time to a new topic um so this is uh i wanted to ask you about an article which it actually just came out um, yesterday, it will be a couple of days ago by the time this uh, podcast is released. Um, but you wrote an article with your dad on the presumption of irreparable harm in the trademark preliminary injunction cases. So, could you speak a little bit about what the article is about? Um, and I'll link to it. It came out in the Trademark Reporter, so I'll link to it as well. But just sort of from from your um, point of view, what's the article? What's that article about?
1: Sure. So, for years, courts had just assumed that plaintiffs in trademark cases, were facing irreparable harm if they were likely to succeed with their infringement claims. If a plaintiff could show a likelihood of success, show that consumers were likely to be confused, then it could generally get a preliminary injunction. And then in 2006, the Supreme Court said that plaintiffs in a patent case had to show irreparable harm as a separate element. That was the the eBay case. It didn't mention trademark law at all. But judges in a lot of trademark cases saw this as, this is a message on high from the Supreme Court, so surely we have to apply it universally. And as of now, the 3rd, 9th, and 11th Circuits say that the presumption is gone in trademark cases. And a lot of district courts around the country have said the same thing. So that's the, the change in the law that really prompted us to to write the article. And, I mean, so ultimately, do
0: you think that that eBay case you mentioned ended up causing some problem? Like, since it just addressed patents and not trademarks, did it create some confusion and some problems? Do you think the presumption should have been changed based on that case at all?
1: I think the presumption still makes a lot of sense in the trademark context. It's a rebuttable presumption too, so it doesn't say that in all cases a plaintiff will get a preliminary injunction even if they can show success. But if you think about sort of the facts of a trademark infringement case, if a plaintiff's reputation is harmed because of trademark infringement, you're not going to find any amount of money that's going to make the plaintiff whole because you can't erase Consumers' minds—you can't go in and delete the way they see mm-hmm. the plaintiff. You know, if there's been infringement, so if there's a trademark case that has merit, then likelihood of confusion is just going to irreparably damage the the goodwill that the plaintiff has built up. You know, you could take any kind of silly kind of infringement example: a defendant makes a perfume that. You know, infringes on the plainest perfume. They call it Channel Number 5 and it looks just like mm-hmm. Chanel Number 5 and people mm-hmm. buy it thinking, oh, this is a real thing, but it turns out to smell terrible or it burns your skin or the bottle mm-hmm. explodes or something. So if a court lets the defendant just keep selling the perfume pending trial, it, consumers are going to think badly of Chanel, think they make a, a bad product. So we argue in the article that the presumption Shouldn't have been changed, and in a in kind of a great stroke of luck when when you write something after we wrote the article, the Inta board of directors issued a resolution saying that the Lanham Act should be amended to keep the presumption of irreparable harm, which was which was pretty great. Yeah, so I mean, I don't know what the likelihood of any kind of amendment really is, but it would be a a great idea. I mean, maybe we can split that into the codification bill and make something <laughs> good come out of that. I don't know. I hope so. <laughs>
0: yeah. And I'll link I'll link to your article as well so people can um, can read up on that in the into release as well. And then hopping one last time to the last topic I wanted to talk about with you. This topic is uh surname refusals. So when we were emailing before this trying to to pick some topics, you'd mentioned that surname refusals is one of your latest soapbox Uh, Soapbox issues. So basically that surnames, even if they belong to only a few people cannot be registered as a trademark, even when the surname is combined with other words. So I guess why is this a soapbox? Soapbox. Oh, I can't say soapbox. Huh? Soapbox issue for you. And um, why do you think the USPTO does this? Are they getting it wrong? Give me your spiel on surname refusals.
1: Yeah, I know. This is what this is what you get for talking to somebody who works at home. So I, like, but every time I see a surname case, I get really annoyed. So um, I, I think what's happening think the USPTO and the TTAB—they are going way overboard on rejecting applications on the ground that there are surnames. Right now in the case law, the board is essentially holding that. If anybody in the U.S. has that surname, it really can't be registered as a trademark. They're not coming out and saying this is the standard, but that's effectively what it is. In one case, there were five people in the U.S. the evidence showed had that surname, and it was denied registration on the surname ground. It doesn't matter how rare the name is so. I mean, I I took a look in the past year. The board rejected applications for Kepler. Hundred people had that surname. Hosky H O S K I E sounds like a good trademark. Three hundred seventy six people had the surname. Luxford it sounds like a classic trademark to me. Yeah. Two hundred twelve people had the surname, and the board said, Oh, can't can't register it. And um, there's another one. Hayek. Less than two hundred people with that last name. And not only that, but the board cites evidence of completely random people with that last name as evidence that the American public is going to recognize it as a surname. So for Hayek, yes, I get that Selma Hayek is a a famous actress, but but the board has an opinion on this case, and it mentions – Nicholas Hayek who was apparently the former CEO of Swatch from 1985 oh, to 2003 <laughs> and a- another one Friedrich August Hayek who is an economist who's been dead since 1992 but he won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1974 so maybe we've all heard of him <laughs> it just seems sort of intellectually dishonest to you know bring up these people and and cite this as evidence. There's another one that I love that the mark is Adlon, A-D-L-O-N. There are only 75 people who had that last name in the U.S., but the board thought consumers would see it as a surname because there's an actress named Patricia Adlon, who the board said was most famously a voice actress for the cartoon show King of the Hill. <laughs> so somehow the public has been exposed to this as a surname. So there's a strong inference that that's the meaning that it has to consumers. And there's there's even one more kind of layer of this to me. In a lot of these recent surname cases, the board talks about what it calls negative dictionary evidence. And That means the word isn't in the dictionary, and that's being held against the applicant. I mean, you think usually with a trademark, you don't necessarily want it to be a Mm. dictionary term, but the board is saying, oh, it's not in the dictionary, must be a surname. So Mm. the board says the fact that like Luxford or Adlon or Hosky, these kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of arbitrary sounding words, the fact that they're not in the dictionary has to be evidence that it's a surname. They don't say, "Well, it's not in the dictionary. Maybe it's fanciful, you know, maybe it's the strongest kind of mark. You know, maybe we should give the the applicant the benefit of the doubt." But they go the opposite direction. So it seems to go against this very basic idea in trademark law. I think that's why I. I that's my soapbox. There. That's why I think they're they're really kind of troubling. Opinions, and I, I would be great if the PTO could just sit back and rethink the approach to to surnames.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I've I've heard of surname refusals, but I had never really gone down the rabbit hole and thought of what happens when they get a little more obscure, or um, you know how they cite to those. I never I'd heard, heard of the um, the dictionary, the bit of that, but it's really interesting. Right. I can see why it's a soap o- ish- soapbox issue. <laughs> soapbox, there you go. Soapbox issue, great. Okay, so that's it. We covered a lot of ground, but uh, I think we hit on all of the topics, and I'll provide a lot of links to the things that you were referencing, the cases and articles. And to wrap up the interview, I like to ask guests a series of rapid-fire questions
1: just for fun. So you ready? Sure. Okay. Uh, sure. Where do you get your IP news? Wow. Well, I I really like the kind of the longer-form blogs and like the and the client updates, so i read i read a lot I read a lot I read um John Welch's blog on the t t a b mm-hmm. and Ron Coleman on likelihood of confusion and the the i p cat and Rebecca Tushnet. I really like the the updates from Lexology. I think there are a lot mm-hmm. of client updates that law firms send in those are really interesting I like Twitter for its links to kind of longer pieces. I discover a lot there. I discovered you there. I I love the, the alt legal newsletter. I think it's super fun to read. Uh Um, But with Twitter, all of a sudden it's an hour and a half later and I'm reading about what books are coming out this week and (laughs) the local politics. So I try to stay away from at least wandering around Twitter. If I don't know exactly what I'm looking for. Um, And what's your favorite IP conference? I've been I've been going to the, the INTA conferences for about 17 years or so, so I've gotten the hang of them a little bit and how to navigate the big conference. So there's lots of different information presented there, which is great. But I've spoken a couple of times at the ABA IP Law Conference, which was, it's much smaller. I, it, you can really run into people and have actual full conversations with them. and. And I really enjoyed that conference a lot. And if you weren't an IP attorney, what would you be doing as a career? I think I would still be a writer of some kind. I think if you're a trademark lawyer, you have to love words. But I'd probably be writing some very strange novels. <laughs> today, today is a big day in our family. It's the first day of National Novel Writing Month. I don't know if you've heard of it. No. This is this is going to be my tenth year participating. And the idea is that you write the first draft of a novel, 50,000 words, in one month which is oh, crazy yeah. and stressful, but it's, it's really a lot of fun. You get to be creative. You get to have full control over your characters, and uh, in a way that you don't have control over the rest of your life. But this one it's nanorimo.org and, and, and everyone should check it out.
0: Oh yeah. That's draft. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> a
1: book in a month. That's a lot of work. <laughs> right. A draft anyway. Yeah. A draft. <laughs> <laughs> Who's a woman professional or otherwise that you look up to? Well, I guess to stay on the theme, now that I've written my, we use air quotes at my house, novels <laughs> with the, for, for November. I read other people's good actual novels, and I'm just so impressed. So J.K. Rowling, Agatha Christie, women who can make a living by telling great stories. And my mom has written 21 children's books. She started when I was a kid, and the last one was published a couple years ago. And, and those are terrific. And what's the best piece of advice or just a good piece of advice that you've received? I guess to keep, to keep with the theme, the, the first year I did the Novel Writing Month, the people running the program sent around a, a pep talk email. And it said, you can't just wait around For inspiration to strike you. If you wait for something brilliant to come to you all of a sudden, you're never going to write a novel. It takes focus and and hard work. And that's, to me, really important outside of the creative writing. If there's a project you really want to do, but no one is making you do it, then don't rely on inspiration to just show up. You have to sit down and, and start working. Yeah, that's good advice.
0: It makes me feel guilty. I need to go do some stuff right now. <laughs> okay, that's it. So thank you so much for joining us, Anne. Do you have any parting words of wisdom? Anything else you want to touch on before we say
1: goodbye? No, I think I think that's it. I suppose as a trademark lawyer, I should say, remember, it's Kleenex brand facial tissues or some <laughs> other trademark lawyer you know, motto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: and um, if any of the listeners would like to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get in touch?
1: Yeah, I, I'm, I am actually on Twitter. I'm at Gilson on TMs, and I will respond if I'm mentioned or you send me a direct message. I also have a, a website that has my contact information, so it's annegilsonlalones.com. Okay, perfect, and I'll
0: link to those as well so people can get to them easily. Um, thanks so much, Ann. Great. Thank you, Hannah.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: that's this week's episode. Thank you for joining us and see you next time.